Cut. And <laughs> you can't just cut. It's a podcast. We don't I even can... need to cut. Both people listening will understand the flow. They, they no. love us anyway. Welcome back to GC8 Podcast. I'm Eric. This is the podcast where we look at film through pop culture history, and we look at pop culture history through film. This week I got Nat with us again. Hey. And Rosie. What's happening? And we are going to be talking about another Bond film today. But before we do that... How's your week been, Nat? It's been kind of great. Uh, actually, it was busy at work, but I managed to sneak in. If you guys get a chance, The New Adventures of Monkey, it's a guilty pleasure, right? It's it's everything good about Power Rangers with all the BS extracted. It's just a, go, a good kung fu serial out of New Zealand, and it's on Netflix. Watch it. I enjoyed the hell out of it. So, The New Adventures of Monkey, eh? So, okay, here's the story. In the late 70s, early 80s, the Japanese did a series called Monkey, which featured this kung fu monkey god who flew around on a cloud. This, I believe, is the source of all the Dragon Ball Z stuff that came yes, later, it is. right? Yeah, I was going to mention that. They dubbed it. It became very popular in Australia and New Zealand. And then, like, 40 years later, they decide to, like, hey, let's do a follow-up series. So, Boom. They just threw together this, like, kids series. And it's not condescending in the way that American kids stuff is. It's just fun. It's not intellectual. It's just a good romp, right? Like, and the fight scenes are as good as you would expect them to be. And if you know anything about New Zealand cinema, you'll see a bunch of, like, faces show up here and there that you'll recognize. Yeah, the monkey god is an interesting character throughout East Asia. So in in India, he's known as Hanuman, and he appears in the Ramayana. And throughout China, uh, you can find stuff about monkey. I read the translation of, it was called monkey, the myth, mythology of monkey. I don't know, when I was a teenager or 12 years old or something like that. Journey into the West is what it's also known as, and you can find uh, movie adaptations of that. There have been several. Jackie Chan was in one. The Monkey God is usually pretty much a badass. He fights with a cudgel or a mace or something and can change size. He's also, yeah, the inspiration for Goku in Dragon Ball Z and um, a lot of other films, kung fu films and stuff like that from Japan all through South Asia. Really interesting character that um, is not really as well known in the West, but it's the trickster god, right? Yeah, it's Coyote. It's Coyote. Um, but And that's one of the things, it's one of the reasons I gravitate towards foreign films is that I find American films are like so heavily foreshadowed. If you pay attention, they're ruined for you. I've probably gone on this rant before, but foreign films either A, aren't that heavily foreshadowed or B are foreshadowed using cultural markers that I am unaware of. So it's not ruined for me at the beginning, right? Like, like the legend of monkey. I don't know all the backstory. I just enjoyed this great Kung Fu show. It was a blast. Um, 
But yeah, even the way they film it, one, one of my, and maybe we could talk about this later, one of my favorite things in the post-28 Days Later era was watching zombie films from around the world and watching how different cultures portrayed zombies. I loved that because they had totally different feelings about them, totally different reactions. It's interesting. But yeah, the the monkey god, he's this Loki-type character who's kind of on the side of good, but also like the rest of the gods find him exasperating and he's cast out. Like that happens yeah. a lot, you know, in in different versions of this. And that's this, this, he plays the part of like a omnipotent buffoon, if that, or omnipowerful buffoon in this. And it, it, again, it works out really great for that, like, Saturday morning action formula. It does a really good job of, of carrying that forward. Rosie, how about you? How, how any, uh, any interesting media you've consumed this week? I've been binge watching Dead to Me. It's quite twisty and interesting so far. It's about a widow, Christina Applegate, who uh, her character is Jen. She's a widow because her husband was out running and uh, was hit by a car. And now she's the single mom of two boys. And she befriends another woman in a, in a grief support group. And some very interesting things come to light about this friend. I watched from 1993 the made-for-cable, made-for-HBO movie The Last Outlaw. And this film starred Dermot Mulroney and Mickey Rourke. It was during the time when HBO was making the transition, really, from showing theatrical releases to being more known for its own content, you know? And so mm -hmm. they made this Western, and... It's critically underrated, in my opinion. It's got, like, so many cool people. Steve Buscemi is one of the cowboys in it. And, you know, um, it's, it's, um, it's really cool. And it was just, I think, overshadowed by Unforgiven, which came out around the same time. Yeah. And so it's this gritty Western, but then Clint Eastwood re re releases the grittiest wet Western ever, like right around the same time. So nobody really was paying that much attention to the last outlaw. And I've never seen the last outlaw, but I, I'm going to say, I feel like unforgiven. It was a good Western. I'm, I'm not panning it, but I feel like it got more accolade than it deserved. Like I thought it was good. I do not think it was great. Perhaps. I, I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and rewatch it. But the problem I have with The Last Outlaw is basically the idea is it's it's these this group of ex-Confederates, you know, after the Civil War. And instead, they're like robbing banks in the Old West. This is a very common Western theme. Right. So the the leader of the gang uh, is is Mickey Rourke. Can I just say that if you ever find yourself in a gang led by Mickey Rourke, just rethink some shit, right? Like, get your shit in order, I guess is where I'm going. Like, it's not It's not going to go well. No, yeah. no, there is no, I don't care if you're out clubbing, right? Like, if Mickey, actually, you know what? That's the one scenario in which Mickey Rourke might be a great team lead. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the, what do you call it? The bar fly scene. <laughs> anyway, so Mickey Rourke, so he's the leader. Dermot Moroni is his um, his like second in command. But first of all, 
Durant's like really young, so he's super fresh faced. And it's a I get that that's kind of what his character's supposed to be about, but he's like a little too young and fresh faced for the old West. And speaking of fresh faces, Mickey Rourke had just come through this period where his acting career had sort of petered out. So he went back to boxing and he was actually a pretty good boxer, but it destroyed the hell out of his face. So in order to get back into acting, he had tons of plastic surgery done. And this is fresh off of the plastic surgery. This is literally Mm. the first thing he made after the plastic surgery. And it, he does not look like he belongs in the old West either. He's got long hair and like this perfectly plastic surgery face. He literally looks like he should be in Motley Crue. Like, <laughs> and like, so there's like, and that's, I kept thinking that I'm like Western or like guns and roses video. What is this? You know? well, but that was, that was also the era where there was a lot of crossover. Like there was plenty of like hair metal Western, Bon Jovi really opened the floodgates to yeah. the Western hair metal crossovers. And right? this, this fits in with that, with the only exception that the look is very glamorous, but the movie itself are very gritty and it's super violent. It's like very bloody compared to what Westerns were being made at the time. In fact, that was one of the criticisms it took was because a lot of the people who were fans of Westerns at that time, it had yet to experience a revival were old people yeah, and old people didn't want to see a lot of violence. That's not the kind of Western they were into. I think it's worth checking out. If you guys get a chance, it's on HBO max. If you have that, I would put it in the top 10 Westerns of the nineties, at least the early nineties. How many, how many Western? Cause I'm thinking tombstone. Yeah. Tombstone. I'm I'm thinking the other one. The other one's Wyatt Earp. <laughs> uh, well, what else dances, happened in dances the with wolves. Dances with wolves, definitely. Um, oh, yeah. And then, uh, you know, uh, I would put Un- Unforgiven on that list. There are a few others, but I'd put Last Outlaw on that list. We'll dive into Westerns sometime in the future I, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we fall down that. Before we go down that rabbit hole, we need to get back to Bond because this is going to wrap up our mini series on Bond. We did a mini series on Tarzan where we did four films. We are in finishing up our mini series on James Bond with the fourth out of four. That does not mean we will not be coming back to Bond. In fact, I can almost guarantee you we will come back to Bond, but we're going to give it a breather for a while, do some other films. The film we are about to do is Quantum of Solace. Quantum. What's that? Quantum of Solace. No T. Is it? This This is your podcast. No, it, there's a T. There's, there's a no T. Quantum of Solace. Check it. Wait, hold on. You're going to hear my clicky clacky keyboard, right? I apologize yeah. for that. Yeah. But no, it is most certainly Quantum. Anyway. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> Uh, I'm uh, ready for your apology. I am I am here to issue an apology. It is Quantum of Solace. And the reason it's called Quantum of Solace, I will get into uh, uh, when I give my background on the production. But Quantum of Solace, the reason we're doing it is pretty obvious. It picks up right where our last one left off. So we did Casino Royale, the 2006 version. Like right where it left off. Like, oh. Right. I'm really excited about this. Like you could watch them boom, boom, right in a row, have a movie night, and it would be 
perfect because the, it picks up exactly where it left off. I love that about this film. I'm going to set up 2008. This film came out in September, was it? Anybody? November. It actually came out, yeah, November in the United States. They wanted it over the Thanksgiving weekend. So this had been in the can before all of this. Um, January, we start off easy. Cyprus and Malta join the Euro, right? Super simple. Uh, January 21st, stocks plunge. If anybody remembers 2008, that was the beginning of the subprime mortgage crisis. Well, the 2007 subprime mortgage crisis ended up in the 2008 stock crash. The film, I believe, was already in the can before this, so it really didn't deal with any of this. Um, Iran becomes a space power. They launch, if anybody remembers that at all, over the financial crisis of 2008, Iran launched a rocket into space. Um, America convinced Georgia to invade South Ossetia so that they could start tension with the Russians. And then a month later in October, when they realized we have to pay for our own financial recovery, they were like, ah, maybe not a war right now. They backed off of that. Everything settled itself out just nicely. Also, interestingly, November 1st, before this film came out, the standard for Bitcoin was published. Just kind of a curious thing. Nobody thought about it then. It wasn't even a thing then. Uh, and most important event of the year, April 10th, Mario Kart Wii came out. <laughs> like, like the subprime thing, the, the financial collapse, threatening of the world. Uh, this was also the year, if you remember, uh, the third world had started entering food riots because of the lack. American corn had been used to make ethanol, which led to a lack of corn for export which led to food riots in the third world. Like, all of this stuff happened in 2008, but this Bond movie was already made, right? It didn't touch any of the stuff that was actually... It. I feel like this is much more a 2006-2007 film. It just happened to release in 2008. It's not their fault, you know? Yeah, in the future, I have to reconsider if maybe we should be giving the background on the... Pro production years yeah and this again 2008 was a weird one right like we'll try this like let's keep doing this but uh yeah i i the world was a drastically different place when this film was released than when it was written and filmed quantum of solace the title comes from a short story ian fleming wrote it's part of the collection for your eyes only which actually takes place seven years after casino royale so I said we were doing stuff in Fleming order, but not totally. This movie follows so quickly on the heels of Casino Royale, and all it really takes from the story is the title. The story itself has no spy shit in it whatsoever. It's Bond attending a dinner party in Bermuda. And at the dinner party, they have this discussion where they talk about the quantum, which is a way of measuring. It's a unit of measurement, the quantum of solace. And I believe the quote was, when the quantum of solace drops to zero, humanity and consideration of one human for another is gone and the relationship is finished. Basically, the host of the dinner party is explaining to Bond the idea of having no more love for someone, no more uh, empathy. And so they took that as the title of the film, one, because it is a Fleming story, 
but two, it's the mood they were trying to achieve with this film, which is very different from a lot of Bond films. This is more about Bond getting revenge for Vesper Lynn's death. This was one of the most accident-prone films in the series. In fact, there was a rumor that it was cursed. Daniel Craig was injured at least twice, possibly three times, uh, maybe more. I'm not sure. They're, they were kind of tight-lipped on it after a while. Um, someone was supposed to deliver the Aston Martin to them. <laughs> this is great. You know, the classic Aston Martin. And drove it into a lake. <laughs> so... so so oh. talk about like oops i mean basically totaled the aston martin and you know i and they're they had one job to deliver this car <laughs> and you know they're like hot damn we're gonna see what this baby can do you know? right and uh into the lake it went is is this why they featured a new production aston martin in the film is that the reason i think think the reason was actually for product placement but yeah that might have been something to do with it as well um so it's uh there were also multiple stuntmen were injured at least two maybe more uh daniel craig was kicked in the face had to have eight stitches and plastic surgery he also sliced off a fingertip he made a joke that he could start a life of crime or something because that's a Uh. you know a mafia thing (laughs) During the 2007-2008 writer's strike, which we've talked about before when we talked about Lost, that was happening at the time that this movie was in pre-production. So the script has a bunch of writers and even underwent rewrites on set, which is a lot of the film's problems, in my opinion. Uh, A lot is based on Michael G. Wilson's work. He's the one that came up with the idea for it, and he's been a producer on the series since the early 70s. In fact... You will see him in bit parts in the Bond films going all the way back to the early Ooh. 70s. Is is he the Alfred Hitchcock of the Bond series? He is the Alfred Hitchcock of the Bond series. In Casino Royale, he was the chief of police. Okay. In So sometimes he has speaking roles. In this film, he's a man sitting in a chair in the lobby of the hotel, the Haitian Hotel once you know what he looks like you'll see him in all the bond films the film follows bond seeking revenge for vesper lynn's death as i said similar to the way diamonds are forever follows bond search for revenge for tracy's death in honor majesty secret service we haven't done either of those films but that was the thing i thought of immediately someone saw those two films obviously probably michael g wilson was like let's do that again and so you get this revenge story instead the film cost about $225 million and was the most expensive Bond film made at that time. Worldwide, it's grossed about $589 million, so it has turned a tidy profit. Critics in general were lukewarm but positive. The most common sentiment is Daniel Craig was great, but the script was kind of half-baked. I think Roger Moore was actually interviewed and asked about it, and he said something to that effect as well, that he thought Daniel Craig made a great Bond, but that the story was just sort of a generic action film and not really a Bond film. My, I'm paraphrasing, putting words in his mouth. I don't have the exact quote in front of me. 
You know what? I think it's appropriate that we just jump in and talk about it because this movie just jumped right the fuck into it, right? Yeah, this is true. I could go either way on this film, right? Like, I could pan it. There are parts of it that are definitely weak, but I enjoyed the hell out of it because they didn't give me time not to like it. The first Mm -hmm. 30 minutes was basically rapid fire action. It was car chase into Mm -hmm. an interrogation scene, into a gunfight, into a foot chase over the roofs. And it was in Venice. It was some other town like Venice. It was amazing. Like, it was, uh, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, there's no, so it's notable. This Bond film is the only Bond film ever made that does not start with the gun barrel intro. Yeah. It just jumps right into it. Just goes, and they're running $100,000 cars down the highway into each other, into trucks. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved it. I had one of those ADD moments of profound calm during all the excitement where I started thinking about this. And the reason I like Daniel Craig, the reason he is my favorite Bond, right? So far, he's the only one that loses his cool just a little. You can see him wanting to curse. He doesn't curse. That would be not Bond. But you can see him grimace. You can see him, like, mm, twitch. Mm-hmm. And that is a profoundly unbond characteristic. Bond is this ideal British man. Yeah. Right? Like, that's why he is popular, is he, he is the platonic ideal of what British men should want to be. Grace under fire, stiff upper lip. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, polite, charming, virile. And well-dressed. Wait, wait. Virile is not something I normally associate with the British. What is the ideal American man? The Rock. Strong, charming, charismatic, right? Like, it, it takes it a different direction, but those ideals do exist. And Bond, to Americans, is a novelty. I think if, you know, so if, if we had a British person on the show, they might have a different opinion about, like, ah, yeah, clearly that's how I'm supposed to be. But... Yeah, and Daniel Craig is the one where you see those cracks start to form. And not not the cracks, you see the human start to emerge from the romantic ideal of the character. And I love that. I love that. And again, he is bound by duty. He is very much a British gentleman, but he's also a person. And I never got that from Sean Connery. I never got that from Roger Moore. Or, you know, whoever the other ones are, I don't care about. Like, they didn't interest me. They didn't grab me. Daniel Craig, I'm all for him. And the first half hour of this movie is just a showcase of why that is true. Yeah, I have really enjoyed the grittier James Bond with, you know, both Casino Royale and with Quantum of Solace. This also is a a revenge film. You know, Casino Royale was a love story. This is a revenge story. He's, he's, you know, getting revenge for Vesper Lynn's death. And then also his partner, Olga, is getting revenge for what happened to her family. I liked that whole parallel storyline throughout the film. But even the point where she almost got him and Bond rescues her. And she was like, I almost had him and you took that away from me. But later on, we see that, you know, things do come to fruition for both of them. And I I just really love that that it really did pick up right where it left off. So it was easy to follow the story and there wasn't a bunch of backstory to it either. Like you had to, to fully understand 
what happened with Quantum of Solace, you really do need to watch Casino Royale. Uh, total total admission here. I did not watch Casino Royale last week because I, I had the I was busy and I did not watch it before doing this. And I really regretted not doing that because I, I remember loving it when I watched it when it first came out. And I should have watched it again yesterday and like refreshed myself because I enjoyed this so much. I had so much fun. This is also, can I just point out, this is the first movie that I wish Tracy had watched and she didn't because of all the other films I've made her watch with me. She wouldn't watch. <laughs> I got to say that I did the exact opposite. I watched them back to back over two days or something like that, but I watched them back to back weeks ago. Now I, it's going to take me a minute sometimes to, to remember certain bits that I wanted to say about it. Overall, I thought the film was good, but not great. And it has the unfortunate problem of being wedged in between Casino Royale and Skyfall, and which are two great films. And this one's just a good film, I think. And the it, it does meander. And there are times where you're like, what are they doing? Why exactly are they doing that? You know, it, it has some holes in it. I didn't have that moment where I wondered. I was like, nope, fuck it. They're in a dogfight in planes. Sure. No, let's do this. I was committed. Was it non sequitur? Sure. Was it fun non sequitur? <laughs> it was the most fun kind of non sequitur, right? Like <laughs> they just, they were just, they were just getting chased by a plane with machine guns. That's all you needed to know. It was beautiful. I don't think so. I think Mark Forrester as a director is different than a lot of Bond directors. He's not typically associated with action films. He's associated with independent or quasi-independent art films like Monsters Ball, The Kite Runner, stuff like that. And so he had definite directorial visions. And sometimes I think that works. Sometimes it doesn't he had a woman covered in oil in this, which was obviously a yeah. reference to Goldfinger. Mm -hmm. And his reason for putting that in was because he wanted to show that oil is the new gold. Okay. I guess kind of interesting, but whatever he does. I think he has a lot of good ideas, but he tries to pack them in tight. Another one was that uh, he wanted there to be a action sequence for each of the four elements, fire, water, earth, and air. Ooh, okay. I'm not sure exactly what, which sequences those were. Now that looking back on it, I know that they were in, there was the plane and the dog fight. So that's obviously the air action air, sequence. Yeah. I'm not sure what the fire, water, uh, and earth The was. earth was obviously the first car chase because it happened in a tunnel. They were driving through the earth. Okay. Um, so now we just need to figure out fire and water. Fire um, was definitely the hotel scene. Fire was definitely the hotel scene. Oh yes. my. Also, can I take one moment? Who the fuck built this shitty hotel? I wrote that down last night while I was watching it. Like, there was one car that ran into a wall in the basement, and the whole fucking thing goes up in flames. <laughs> like, I don't care what Bolivian building codes are, right? Like, I don't care. This is one of the times where I was like, what the hell? Like, where I was asking, why did it keep exploding? I get why there was the initial explosion, but it kept exploding. No, it's like, no, boom. There was and apparently the next... a thing in every room that when the wall fell off, you would see it and you could shoot it and that would explode. That, yeah. Like, every room had its own exploding part, right? Like, 
some pyromaniac's idea of how a hotel should be built? What? Look, if anybody out there is listening and you are a civil engineer and you could explain why this hotel would blow up from one car running into a wall in the basement, correct us. We're not we're not proud. Tell us why we're wrong. I want to know why there was the chain of dominoes explosions. I get the first explosion. I like I okay, it hits the the fire. fuel tank or whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. Oh no, a fire. But like the Titanic was safer than this, right? Like Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not only was the Titanic safer, Michael Bay's Titanic was safer than this. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. okay. So all we're missing is the water fight, right? The water, the water fight is when, is when Daniel Craig was on the speedboats. Oh, oh yeah, right. when, that's right. Yeah, when, God. yeah. So okay, well done. I'm, I'm given again. Thank you. I enjoyed all of these. Yes. Yeah, it was too. a little rapid fire. So sure. one one thing that Michael Forster or sorry Mark Forster threw in here um, that I thought was kind of cool, as far as homages go, is and it's not a Bond homage; it's an homage to a different kind of spy film, which was the opera scene was in a lot of ways a direct translation homage to the man who knew too much, mm-hmm. and I love a good well choreographed i'm not an opera fan but i love a good choreographed fight or action scene to opera set to opera they did it in the punisher they've done it in a few other films they did it in this uh, film uh, I th- the fifth element the fifth element yeah fifth element did it well something about the combination of opera and action mo- movies you know just comes together beautifully when done right you're i i want to come back to that not not today but at some point you're right like there is there's something to be said for it for real i i I also thoroughly enjoyed that and also i mean the eye they had the The, big eye on the stage love that obviously nat knows that both of us are big fans of apocalypse now and that's one of the first films where i saw it in the ride of the valkyries right when the helicopters are coming in again opera set with like violent action and, somehow works and i think and i i think you're right but i think it's i think it's more than just opera because as much as flight of the valkyries and again thank you for making me watch apocalypse now and by making me watch i mean you turned it on and i sat transfixed for like five hours not only by apocalypse now but by hearts of darkness right yeah. after it but not only is it the flight of the Valkyries scene it's that it's the end um, where the doors play the end. And it's this mm-hmm. beautifully, like, it's this beautiful disconnected piece of music to the horror that's happening happening on screen. Right. Um, so and- back to this film, though. Tosca is the opera. It's a Puccini opera. That's what it was. London sends someone after Bond in this one to try to rein him in or whatever, and that was Miss Fields who they never say her first name in the film, but it's Strawberry, apparently. Oh. Strawberry yeah. Fields. You know, red hair, redhead and all that. What do we think of her? Specifically compare her to Vesper, who was also sent to look in on Bond. She didn't play hard to get so hard. I'll yeah. say that. <laughs> she showed up, she slept with him. She ran interference, she died. Like, she was there, like... So she said she wasn't going to sleep with him. And then after she did, she said she hates herself for it. What the hell is that supposed to mean? Yeah. Hates herself. And then she did it again. 
she didn't hate herself. She was like all about being up in, in uh, Mr. Braun's business. And, you know, she don't, don't tell me for one minute she didn't enjoy that and didn't do it on purpose. It just sucks that she ended up dying. And I actually wish that she would have had more time on screen. He didn't even charm her, right? Like he didn't no. even like, he just basically like, hey, are you coming in? That was it. Like, but he was Bond. Yeah, can you help me find the stationery? Mm-hmm, okay. She was not at all, like, harangued or anything. Yeah. No, no, he just bonded her. Basically, <laughs> he, he did. Bonded he her. bonded her. She helped him find more than a stationery. <laughs> In her defense, we don't know that she didn't help him find the stationery. It could have happened off screen. This is like, true. <laughs> I did not look for the stationery in the scenes, and I had completely forgotten about that when it was, uh, you know. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be a great little Easter egg if if we went back and watched again? <laughs> if you saw, oh, hey, they found it. Like it's right I'm there. I'm so glad they found the stationery. Good for them. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I just wish she would have had more time on screen because I would have liked to kind of get to know her a little bit more as a character rather than just another Bond accessory. Yeah. That's me. Here's me being a feminist again, kind of wanting a woman to, you know, actually have a character and a plot. I'm with you because, like, when she died, I didn't have anything to feel bad about. Like, it, it she had been there that shortly. Uh, Mathis had just barely hit the point where I was like, ah, oh, fuck. Like, oh man, I regret that. Speaking of women, I want to go to the other extreme. This had a bigger role for M. Had she been given more screen time, Judy Dench could have stolen this. I could have watched a movie that was just M. She mm -hmm. was so fucking powerful. She was, oh my God, I love her. Um, but she changes her mind from reel him in to let him go. So, like, let him run with this uh, because she trusts him because she trusts him. She knows he is one of the few people that is absolutely loyal to her, whereas her supervisors have obviously already said they're going to deal with the devil. Judy Dench could not have been picked more perfectly for this. M had been for, what, 40 years, a man, a very austere British gentleman, civil servant, etc., And they went kind of a different way with Judy Dench. And she was so good at this. She was so amazing. I was very impressed with her performance, and I, I love her um, take-no-crap approach to, to James Bond. Like, she's just not afraid to tell him what for if he needs to hear it. In this film, she really learned where she should rein him in and where she should let him go, because when she let him go, some things happened that needed to happen. Let's make it clear for anyone that sort of new to the Bond canon that we're talking about Judy Dench in this film, but she had played M for more than a decade at this time. Mm -hmm. So just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, but that decade is still like a fifth of the Bond franchise. It's true. Like, yeah, through most of it, again, through most of the films I remember as a kid, um, it, I can't remember the gentleman's name. He was good. But Judy Dench, this is her role now. Like, shoot, <laughs> like, this is her. This, she's the best one, clearly. I liked that it was based on the Bolivian water war. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. that's something that's new to sort of the Bond story. They're, they're, like, 
real world politics haven't come back into it since the Cold War, I feel. Like, I feel like after the Cold War, they got away from politics and just had a lot of Bond supervillains with, you know, I'm going to take over the world kind of Bond villains without getting into real world politics, which is what Bond was rooted in. I mean, when we talk about Smirsh and stuff like that, that was a real organization. You know, Duchenne Bureau, CIA, all of that was real, and it was in Casino Royale way back when, and Bond films got away from it for a while, and I like that they're rooting it back into real-world politics, specifically Marshall Plan, U.S. kind of South America stuff, and water, and oil, and those kind of things which are becoming major sources of con- international conflict. Yeah, and I remember there was, there was a lot of, and I don't want to say a lot, there was concern over the privatization of water dating back to a few years before this right um there was lot there was lots of underground media coverage of it so they were picking like a real world topic and then the economy collapsed and there was a war that tried to start world war three just south of russia and there was like all this stuff happened in 2008 after they wrote this really really excellent 2006 treatment right (laughs) Like, like all this apocalyptic stuff. Right. Well, the Bolivian water war was a real thing that happened around Y2K. And they privatized water to the point where it was illegal to put out pans to catch rainwater because that was considered theft. Because the, you know, the water rights had been had been assigned to some monopoly. You know, it was crazy. But uh, I don't know a ton about it, but I remember it. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought that that was interesting. The the emphasis on on natural resources and, you know, environmental problems and things like that. Yeah, I think it would have been a much different film had had the events of 2008 happened before the film came out, especially since a ton of this was written right there on the set, you know. Oh, yeah. met, you know, but thanks um, to the writer's strike. <laughs> yeah, thanks to the writer's strike. Yeah. Well, and if you think about again, going back and remember the parts of this film, I remember weren't written. They were coordinated, right? Like they were the parts of the film. I absolutely remember. Oh God. They went to the party. The girl died. They got, they got revenge. Everything else is action. Everything else are these like really well done 10 minute action sequence. Can I just take a moment to appreciate the fact they did the scene of the foot chase over the roofs while they were simultaneously showing footage of the horse race in the streets. They would cut from the horses, which was kind of this like this Formula One horse race just right through the crowd in these old brick streets, right? They show the horse race, they show the guys running, they show the horse race, they show the guys running, they show Mm -hmm. some Krav Maga in a bell tower, they show the horses, they show the guys fighting with knives. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Like, they, they did that so well. I don't think this movie suffered much from a lack of writing. And that's just my take. Like, that, I, I liked it for exactly what it was. I also want to add the fact that that rooftop scene was actually shot on real rooftops and not in a soundstage. They found that it was cheaper to do it on actual rooftops than a soundstage. 
Um, so that was no holds barred, really running on the top to roost in a real town. And if I remember correctly, there were plenty of scenes in that where it was Daniel Craig and the stuntman fighting in mm -hmm. the bell tower, right? Like, and, and let's also not take away from the fact um, that that Olga, um, who who played Camille, she did a lot of her own fight scenes and stunts too. She she had trained the whole time, like from the moment she learned she got that role, she trained constantly. Not not only physically trained. Um, but she also trained so that she could speak in a Spanish accent because she's not Spanish at all. Was Camille a Bond girl? They did not sleep together. He did save her. I don't know that there was any chemistry there at all romantically. Yeah, it, it depends on how you define a Bond girl because a, yeah. a lot of the women who are called Bond girls did not actually sleep with Bond. If you go back and watch the films... Not, you know, some of them do, some of them don't. But I think that a lot of times, you know, a clue might be the name. Like if they if they're if they're Pussy Galore or like sure. Strawberry Fields, they're a Bond girl. I'm sorry, but but she was just a woman who he had a working partnership with. If there hadn't been that scene where he saved her from the warlord that she had fully intended to kill. She didn't care if she died. That wasn't the point. Right. Our view of her would have been much different. Mm -hmm. Again, as little as I felt about Miss um, Fields, because again, she was there for a minute, I think Camille was a much better character than the film let her be. Again, like if it had just been... That first, you first meet her, she gets in the car, she shoots at Bond, he gets out. Like, I wish there had been that level of, like, cooperative antagonism the whole time. Mm hmm mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, it was that she got knocked out on the boat. He saves her. It changes your opinion for the rest of the film. Well, yeah, especially after she goes off on Bond for saving her in the first place because she was like, I was going to kill him. Yeah. You know, and eventually you find out that the reason why she wanted to kill him was because not only did he kill her father, but from what she was alluding to, he sexually assaulted her mom and her sister right in front of her. And then yeah. what happens when she goes to, she finally gets her moment. She goes, she goes to kill the general while he's in the process of trying to rape the house servant that is there. So not only does she rescue her, which, you know, is a, a is a, a moment of, I don't know, a, a moment of, I don't know, reconciliation, kind of. You know, it's like she didn't get to save her mom and her sisters, but she did get to save this girl. And not just that, she killed the general too um, and really just beat the crap out of him. The general was raping that woman as the ho the hotel was catching fire as an allusion back to her story about her mother and sister yeah. who set the house on fire. The mm -hmm. only, yeah, it was... Yeah. But had she been left to kill him in the first place, he would not have been in the hotel to rape that woman. True. And again, this is a Bond movie, right? This isn't a, a Camille movie, which mm -hmm. I'd watch. I um, would too. Especially if it... It started and ran as hard and fast at the beginning as this one did. Like, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I think there was a lot of room in her character to make her less damselly. And mm -hmm. again, when when she reintroduces to the film, it's Bond and Miss Fields at the party. He sees her. He saves her from God, whatever the weenie's name was, uh, Mister Green. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mr. Green. I don't think she needed saving. Yeah, she was fine. She knew exactly what she was doing with Green. Yeah. She'd been working with him for a while. Can I can I take a moment to also gripe about Mr. Green being the weeniest Bond villain ever? They did that on purpose. They didn't want to make him look like a cartoonesque weenie. They wanted they made him uh they they made him like the most normal looking Bond villain ever to kind of uh bring across bring across this message like even even the most normal looking dudes have under can have some serious underlying evil. Yeah, this goes to Mark Forrester's again trying to like explode all of the Bond tropes. But yeah. Yeah. But it it undercut at the very end where Camille is fighting with the general and Bond is fighting with Mr. Green. Like I'm watching Mr. Green like kind of angrily swipe at Bond with this axe. I'm like, come on, Daniel, just punch him. Just hit him. Just kick him. Look at him. He's like Square 120 pounds. Fuck him up. Yeah. Like, you got this. The thing that they did that I, with him that I liked was they didn't make him in a, at all weird or creepy looking. One of the things that I know that, Rosie, you liked, but I didn't like as much about Casino Royale was they made Lashif like, cry blood and stuff like that. And, and they couldn't <laughs> make him just a normal guy, an evil guy, yeah. but a normal guy, you know? They had he to had give him some kind of weird thing to make him creepier, yeah. you know? So that's one thing I liked about the villain here, even though he was the weeniest Bond villain ever. Another kind of personal gripe about I have about this film just because it bothers me I'm such a fan of canon is that Renee Mathis spoiler Renee Mathis dies he's killed but in the Bond universe he's still around in from Russia with love which happens after this in Bond's career again we know that this is definitely not a reboot it's a prequel because of what we'll find out later on in this series you know, even at the end of this one, you, we said that there wasn't a gun barrel at the beginning, but the gun barrel appears at the end. And it's yep. there to show you now Bond's career has really started. This is the beginning of the Bond, you know, mm -hmm. you know, he's not going to be this loose cannon forever. He's going to become more the British secret agent and less the uh, loose cannon person that had to go avenge Vesper. He's become hardened through what's happened and he's going to put on this uh, debonair front. Yeah. And, and also didn't they kind of do that, um, have that scene at the end of Quantum of Solace simply because they wanted to wrap up that whole Vesper Lind love and revenge storyline and just put a, you know, like bookends on it, I guess, to close the book on it. Yeah, it's it's a complete story in two films. In a lot of ways, this is reminds me a lot of Kill Bill, which was really one movie in two parts. Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace works best as one movie in two parts. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Totally agree on that. I also wanted to point out uh, that this was the shortest Bond film in the series at 108 minutes. And it also had the most active acts of violence in uh in all of the bond films as well yeah and depending on where you are i almost guarantee none of us have seen the complete film because it was chopped up in different countries had different bits of it hmm. to my knowledge there's no complete director's cut that includes all of it 
we all may have even seen different versions. I just know that that because different places objected to different bits of violence, different scenes were cut or altered. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, and it's a very tight Bond film at you know that short running time. I would argue that's all it needed, right? Like, how how long are you going to make those four fight scenes? Well, the four action scenes, I should say, with the the four elements. Like, how much how much more can you add to that? They did. I think they did perfect. Let's wrap this up then. I want to say if you have anything you want to tell us, especially why the building kept exploding. Please, engineers, architects, anybody weigh in on this. Like, it doesn't, we don't get it. Write us at GC8 Podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast. All one word at gmail.com. Let us know. Also, like us, subscribe, write a review, give us five stars. It just helps other people find the show it raises us up in the the standings and the algorithm and allows other people to see that we exist and hopefully people will start listening right now as far as i know we have no listeners <laughs> we, we don't we don't need your pity listen no no we're good <laughs> but we're fine <laughs> all right but seriously yeah if you like this get your friends to listen it's not that hard. We're not asking much. Definitely want to plug the Black and Bluegrass Roller Girls. Uh, you can find us online at nkyrollerderby.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Just look up Black and Bluegrass Roller Girls. And also, I skate under the name Briggs and Smackum. And you can find my personal skater page also on Facebook at uh, Briggs, letter N, Smackum. That's S-M-A-C-K apostrophe E-M number 11. So look look me up there, like the pages, and uh, maybe catch a roller derby bout at some point in time when we get back to it after this COVID stuff is all over. Uh, EvilIsland.net, EvilIsland.net, EvilIsland.net. That's it. I got the one thing, but I'll do it three times. <laughs> okay, uh, that's just one evilisland.net, or is it evilisland.net, evilisland.net, evilisland.net? I haven't <laughs> checked, but you know you could redirect domains like that. But I'm guessing it's just the one. That's that's. I'm not the webmaster. I just write for them. You know, like I, I'm just the doofus with words. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Nat. And this is Rosie.